Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Serving the Rogue Valley from Central Point, Oregon. We are a multi-generational family. Equipping believers to be adopted in, growing up, and reaching out through the gospel. Family, uh, again, as we, we remind you, we're in the book of Mark, and uh, I wanted you to always be conscious of the approach Mark is taking. Mark sees Jesus as a conquering hero, and he's simply moving across his domain and declaring himself to be the God-man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so we come to a text of Scripture today, and, and I want you to understand, to be fair with you, once you read it, you're going to look down and go, wow, how are you able to preach anything out of this this morning? And I kind of agree with you. Uh, you it's a very straightforward piece of pa- uh, passage of Scripture. Uh, Jesus went out into the field, and people followed him. That's the first part. The second part is, is he called the disciples to himself and commissioned them. Shall we close in prayer? But in light of that, let's do this. What I want to also teach you and remind you this morning is, in fairness, when God the Holy Spirit, who worked to engineer Scripture to give us the confidence that this is from God, when he's the one who has engineered this, we have a myriad of applications. And one of the things that when I was a young pastor, um, frankly, we were taught never to really apply Scripture because we are robbing you and your work with the Holy Spirit to go walking out of the sermon that morning and go, God taught me this, God taught me this. God taught me this, and it wasn't engineered from the heart and mind of the pastor. And over the, over the course of the next 40 years, what we've seen is, is that the church, the pastor, has become very, very, very much a significant part of applying God's Word to the church family. So I want to remind you this morning, uh, after I've already told you what, what it means, we're going to look at six life lessons, all right? These lessons are mine. I'm going to tell you right off the bat, they're my applications that I've gotten in study from Scripture this week. But I want you to not only use the ones I give you, but I'm hoping that it allows you to recognize that the Holy Spirit works in noodles in your life so that you come to conclusion, you see the magnificence of Scripture and how God works in your life to bring maturity and connection and intimacy with Him. So we're going to look at my six life lessons this morning. And the, the ultimate background is, is what happens when Jesus takes over. If, if He really takes over, He is very, very inclusive in your life. And so from the very beginning... I want you to see, number one, in terms of a life lesson, passionately seek God's work in your life. Now, I want you to take your Bibles to open them this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3. We're going to go from verse 7 all the way through to 21 this morning. But I want you to see these different tastes of God's work. Notice, if you will, Jesus withdrew with his disciples, to the sea. And the great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So family, I want you to understand, um, you know the crowds. The crowds are going to be somewhat fickle. But there are a passionate few among that crowd who are chasing down and changing everything about their lives because Jesus has asked them to. You remember a number of weeks ago in in Mark chapter 1, 
Peter and Andrew, James and John, were called as his first disciples, we're told. Well, what do we see in the very next section of Scripture? They're with him in the, in the Sabbath. They're with him in synagogue. And right from, the, right from the beginning, there's an identification. We're with Jesus. We want to go where Jesus goes. We saw just two weeks ago, now Jesus asked them to come. We're going to go have dinner with tax collectors and sinners, people of ill repute. We want, I want you to come with me, guys. Family, understand, wouldn't that have been a little intimidating for the average Jewish man or woman who was a strong synagogue follower? Hey, come on, we're going to go eat with some tax collectors and sinners tonight. We're going we're to join, we're going to have dinner with Matthew, come on. And there they follow along. And they're happy to do so. We now find them leaving the synagogue. Now remember, I want you to remember why they're leaving the synagogue. Last week, we ended the sermon. The Herodians and the Pharisees were already conspiring to kill Jesus Christ. All right? So he leaves them. Remember, Jesus isn't down here for man's approval. Jesus isn't down here to do stuff that make men happy. Jesus is down here to do the will of the Father. And you're going to find him doing the will of the Father at the end of the book when he finally ascends Calvary's hill and dies on the cross, marvelously to raise three days later. You see, he doesn't care about mankind, and he now heads out into the field. And what do we find? We find his followers passionately pursuing their Lord and Savior. So the point I want you to understand here is that discipleship is identified by the openness to the words and the person of Jesus himself. All right? His followers are going to do what he says. His followers are going to want to know who he is. And family... People are going to come for the wrong motives. We'll look at that in a moment. But his core teaching is revolutionary. One man identified in Matthew 8 as a scribe, he makes his living by copying and teaching the law. He comes to him hoping, I think, for a job. And he says this, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. But the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. So, as he hands his as he hands his resume to Jesus, Jesus looks down and says, wait a second. There's no paycheck here. You come and follow me. You come and follow me, and we'll let everything take care of itself. Your first and foremost responsibility is come to me. Peter understood that, and that's what makes this whole point incredible. In, G in John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching some very difficult pieces of Scripture. Jesus has just told a crowd of people, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, forgive me, but if any preacher came in, I don't think cannibalism would be the first thing that comes to our heads but that's exactly what that well, what is he teaching we can't do that and they run they don't understand that ultimately all he is saying is you take me you take me in as if i was your food you take me in as the greatest priority in your life i am your nourishment and as he speaks in such a literal way that they don't get it and they leave. Jesus looks over to his followers, his disciples. So, well, what about you? How come you're not leaving? And in verse 68 of chapter 6 in John, he says this, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So there's going to be some tough issues in life. There are times when you open the Bible and 
you struggle with its meaning. There are times when you open the Bible and you see something that you should be doing and you recognize, boy, this is going to be a significant change in my life. But you also know now who you choose to follow. And though the, the change in your life may be with fits and starts, it's still a process that you pursue. So family, understand passionately pursue God. Passionately pursue Jesus Christ. But I want you to, to be reminded, does that mean that God expects from us is everything? What does that mean? Does he mean that you can't enjoy life and have someone give up something for him? Now I want you to understand, on one level the answer is yes. But on another level, the answer really is no. God never said give up your wife, give up your husband. Peter would go on in ministry, and one of the great things Paul would remind the church in Corinth, Peter didn't give up his wife. She travels with him. He goes everywhere he goes. They've enjoyed fellowship with one another. They've enjoyed that passionate relationship with one another. Even at the end of life, we've talked about it. They died one week apart. She first, apparently on a cross. He second. And he encouraged her in her death until she was home first. So family, Jesus isn't saying, I want you to give up everything. He's simply saying, I want you to take me into your marriage. I want, I want you to take me into the very priority of your life. Your mannishness or your femininity is designed first and foremost with the priority of Jesus Christ as you enter into what you do. On a practical level, I think Peter enjoyed fishing for the rest of his life. Now understand, I don't have a clear statement in Scripture that says Peter liked to fish. It's not there. But I want you to understand, how many times do you find Peter running back, running back to what he, what he naturally enjoyed doing throughout the Gospels? How many times did you find Jesus using fishing, either fishing illustrations or an example? He says, hey, Peter, you and I don't have enough money to pay the temple tax. Hey, I want you to run down to the water, and the first fish you catch, open its mouth, take it out. Well, do you think he went, oh, doggone, he knows how much I hate fishing. Do you really think that was it? I think he ran down to there and enjoyed what he said. God never said, stop. I don't want you to enjoy life. What he did say is, I'm the highest priority in your life. Use what you enjoy for my honor and glory. Use the things that I bring into your life for my honor and glory. And family, I want to promise you, if you honor the king as a slave, do you really believe the king isn't going to allow his slave an enjoyment in serving him? Passionately. Seek God's work in your life, no matter where that takes you. I want you to notice, secondly, be careful that your spiritual desires are not self-serving. Many times I believe we can come to church, we can enhance our relationship with Christ, or want to, and do so for a self-serving reason. We want to make our marriage better, so we come to church because we know our spouse wants us to. We can, we can plead with God, Father, get, take this from me and I will do dot, dot, dot. Listen to how these men and women reacted beginning in verse 9, and we'll read to 10. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Family, unbelievably so, large crowds were making ministry very, very dangerous. So he had a boat on the ready, because as they were coming down, they were literally were pressing him into the ocean, or pressing him into the Sea of Galilee. So 
It was such that he designed a plan to put himself in a boat and row off, lest he find himself crushed or drowned. Jesus kept this large boat in the ready. The sick were refusing even to wait their turn to come and touch him. And the struggle versus healing and responding to Christ makes it hard to evaluate their priorities. And family, let's, let's be honest for a moment. Put yourself in a life-diminishing situation. Remember last week, the man who had a paralyzed hand? He had a crippled hand. What would you do if it was you? What, what ends would you go to have that lifetime problem diminished and taken away? How fast would you push forward in a crowd to try to get your turn in front of Jesus? What if Jesus got tired and, and he stopped five people ahead of you and, and you had to walk away one more day with, with a crippled hand? What if you were a leper and you knew that to be around people with leprosy meant you could infect them and they had every right to cause you harm because you came near them. How would you hide your problems to sneak in to see Jesus? And we have that happening all around. It's very hard to judge their motives. Why were they coming? Were they coming just to get healed? Or were they coming because they really responded to Jesus? About a year ago, Kathy came home uh, having, having met... Uh, a first-generation immigrant, having come from Asia. And he was so thankful, as Kathy was trying to share the gospel, he was telling her about the impact that Christians had in his life. He went on to tell her that he would not have been able to come to the United States if it wasn't for the love and the support of the Christian community. And, and there in Texas, a number of families banded together and sponsored his family to come over to the United States, allowing him to come, have enough resource then to, to get a toehold or a foothold here in America. He was so appreciative of the believing community for what they were willing to do. He went on to say, the Buddhists would never do anything like that for him. And they wouldn't do it for other Buddhists also. He says, if I was ever to become a Christian, Excuse me, if I was ever to become anything, I'd become a Christian. I want you to hear me out. He was so appreciative of the loving kindness of the believing community. He did not want Jesus. Have you ever met anyone who wants all of the benefits of Christianity and doesn't want the cross? Or the cross isn't the highest priority? in terms of their walk? Family, we cannot want the Savior for what He can do for us. We have to want the Savior for who He is and the offer first and foremost of salvation. But there really seems to be a number of reasons why these people gathered and were following Jesus into the fields. Some were seeking position and recognition, as we saw the scribe this morning. He was handing a resume in. He said, man, I'll, I'll, I'll write down anything. I'll, I'll teach anybody. Because you're growing in popularity. I, I, I think this is going to be a good gig for me. Some wanted to, to better earn God's love. Do you remember? The rich young ruler in the Gospels, who said, what more do I need to know eternal life? He says, I've already obeyed all the Ten Commandments. What more can I do? He says, fine, give up everything and come follow me. You see, he didn't want Jesus' priority. He just wanted the validation that he'd already done enough to earn any love that the Savior could have offered him. He wanted to be sufficient in what he said. I think some wanted their version of Jesus politics. 
This is not a, a new thing. It's not an American identity. Family, one of the disciples that we'll look at in a minute was known as Simon the Zealot. Well, why was he the Zealot? Because he loved Fox News. <laughs> Can't you picture him? Man, he wore a cap that had a big, huge American flag. Can't you picture his T-shirt? It would have said something about Brandon. Can't you picture it? There were people that were coming because they saw life through their own eyes. And they thought, oh, Jesus, the Messiah, he's the one we want to follow. He's going to throw off those Romans. He's going to live as a king. We want that kind of political structure. We want that life. And we ran to him because he's going to give us the political makeup that we want and deserve. Family, I believe, lastly, that many were seeking the privilege of either seeing or being a part of the signs and wonders that he did. And so just as we talked a moment ago, they came to him from Jerusalem, 80 miles to the south. They came to him from Tyre and Sidon, 50 miles to the west. They came from Idiomia, another 100 miles to the southeast and they came but they wanted to be healed they wanted to be fixed and I understand the, the heart's desire to do so but they didn't want the Jesus that Jesus was offering and family wouldn't you and I want to go somewhere and be able to just simply watch someone who had a lifetime paralysis suddenly be healed wouldn't you and i want to see someone who is crippled to stand up out of their electric wheelchair wouldn't you and i want to see someone throw away all of their aids medications or all of the sudden know that their cancer had was gone wouldn't you like us to jump in the bus as he went over to the hospital and just simply gone, went from room to room and began to touch. And as he touched, they got dressed and walked home. Wouldn't you want to see that? And all of that would have been the wrong priority to pursue Jesus Christ. So we need to understand, be careful that your spiritual desires are not self-serving. And so as you see a passage like this and, and you recognize that they were so interested in being healed that they didn't even care about Jesus' health and well-being. He could have been crushed. You and I need to ask ourselves the tough questions. Why am I loyal to Jesus? Am I just so appreciative for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the offer of salvation, the eternity that I'll spend with Him knowing that I will sing his praise, not just be in a holy place, a good place, where I have a room or a mansion prepared for me, but I will be there because my Savior is there, and he is my highest priority. Family, I want you to notice, let's look at a, a third life lesson. Keep the work of Christ pure. Notice, if you will, Verse 11 says this, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Family, before I answer it, I want you to kind of park the idea away. Maybe you can have some family discussion later on. Why did Jesus so sternly bid the demonic spirits to remain silent. Why did he stop them? You'll come up with your own answer. Let me give you what I believe. They were the wrong ambassadors to spread the news. You see, we don't understand completely this, this demon possession so concentrated in this period of time. 
Family, it has no comparison in the Old Testament. By the book of Acts, you already see diminishment. We find very few references, and the key one is in Ephesus later on where there was a high amount of demonic activity and respect for magic and the underworld. We find very little. And so we don't really understand, but I can tell you this, the demons were delivering havoc to the people coming to Christ. And, and if you use your awareness for just a moment, the symptoms of demonic influence included superior strength. Do you remember the, the demon of Gadara, or the man of Gadara? He could break the chains that were on his wrists. It took him to places of isolation. We find the man of Gadara in tombs. It gave him antisocial anger. It gave them self-harm. So one demoniac would take and dive into water to drown himself and then jump into fire to burn himself. Family, it, it embarrassed the world, an evil spirit, to come out and give acknowledgement or allegiance would have minimized the message and the person of Christ. He's already going to be blamed in the, in the future here of casting out demons by Satan. Do you think the satanic world would have helped the cause if they came out praising and identifying who Jesus Christ was. Second Corinthians teaches us that, that Paul picks up on this idea, and Paul is made aware. He says, what accord, what partnership has Christ with Belial, another term or identity for Satan? Verse 16, we're reminded that that partnership doesn't have anything for us because... Verse 16 says, we are the temple of the living God. Family, since we have within us the very presence of the Holy Spirit, then maybe it's important that our lives match our message. What do you think? How many of us have got onto social media and we've been absolutely unfiltered with some of the things that we've said. Not appreciating the fact that our friends and family and those around us can, can read everything that we say. Any act of unkindness, any behavior that you and I would identify as unbecoming the cause of Christ. And then the next time we meet them at lunch, we begin to share all of the good things that Jesus Christ has done in our lives. What does that do for the impact of who we are as ambassadors to Jesus Christ? Family, maybe we should have a little bit more filtered. What would happen if our personal holiness should be examined before we comment on others' behavior? Before we look down and, and recognize the faults with other people, what if we looked at our, ourselves spiritually in the mirror and made ourselves aware of who we were in light of our testimony and our representation of Jesus Christ? You see, the right words said by the wrong person diminishes the message of God's offer of salvation. I want you to see the, the fourth of the life lessons that I've taken home. The foundation of Christianity was a family. See, Jesus is, we're going to turn right now. Jesus is now going to go up a hill and, if you will, take his first retreat with his followers. And we know that as the, the calling of the twelve. But I want to suggest to you that the group that he took up there that day was far larger than the twelve. We know in the book of Matthew that 72 men were sent out to represent God. They, they preached throughout Galilee. 
They went out two by two, so there were 36 pairs. If we recognize the 12 disciples, only six pairs of all of the 36 were ultimately identified as disciples, men who would become apostles. This was a far larger group. There could have been women involved that, that went that weekend. Knowing that God would call the apostles to be men, he still took women who were significant. Mary Clopas, James and John's mom, others, Mary Magdalene, following along, being a part of this inner circle. This was far larger than simply the twelve who were picked as the twelve. Family, they all carried a deep attraction to Christ. We've talked about that, passionately pursuing. They, they were willing to go anywhere that Christ asked them to go. There was something about Him that made them wish to make Him their master. They also wanted to identify with Him. And I want you to know, that demanded courage. We already are aware that men within the Galilean community had already begun to conspire to kill Jesus. Do you think that would have been a good thing to identify with Jesus if they're all wanting to kill Jesus? You're at least going to get caught up in the collateral damage if not be a target yourself. So to some level that already demanded courage. They were willing to become His by being submissive to His understanding of life. And out of this total, he picks out men who would be the disciples. Family, they were going to get blessings that others didn't get. They were going to get propelled into kingdom identity that others wouldn't receive. Family, what would it have been if you'd have been on that retreat that weekend? And he picked the 12 out that he picks. And you didn't, you didn't make the final cut. And eventually you heard that the very identity of the kingdom was going to have the disciples' character, the disciples' names, the disciples' recognition right there. Can you imagine suppressing your own disappointment for not being chosen? Maybe, maybe the jealousy that was inside you? The rivalry? You know that the twelve struggled with rivalry and jealousy throughout their ministry. What would have happened to those who weren't even picked? And finally, what did that mean to family loyalty? You see, all of that comes crushing here in this moment. The very foundation of Christianity was a family. Notice what it says, verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Family, if I can use this as the very as, as the very planting of Christianity. The Christian faith is something that from the beginning had to be discovered and lived out in a fellowship. We needed each other from the very beginning. The whole essence of Christianity was that it bound men and women to each other and expected them to live with each other and for each other with a holy love that Jesus Christ commissioned. I want to suggest to you one of the reasons that I am so committed to the idea of local church and am convinced that local church is the core teaching about the church within all of the New Testament. 125 times approximately it's, rec it's, it's recognized, the word church. I believe about 118 of those deal specifically with a certain church, the Galilean church, the Roman church, etc. I believe it was a local entity. You see, and here's why. You see, family, it's very easy for me to love somebody in the universal church. Somebody knows Jesus Christ and they live in Peoria, Illinois. Man, it's easy to love them. Just stay in Peoria and live out Jesus. You come to under one roof and I'm stuck with you? Whoa. 
Isn't that an entirely different situation? All of a sudden, our foibles, uh, the, the things that make us tick, the things that we do well, the things that we do wrong, the sins that we have, the sins that we cover up and suddenly get discovered, all under one roof, with one identity, searching one purpose, and yet now we have a responsibility to come together and love Jesus Christ, and in doing so, love each other. An entirely different process. An entirely different demand. And now all of a sudden, I'm, I'm responsible. Not just because I'm pastor, but I'm part of a family. I have to pray for you that you overcome. I have to pray for you that you succeed. I have to pray for you that when you represent your circle card, you explain the gospel of Jesus Christ well. And there are times when in my heart of hearts I'm going, oh, I wish my wife was there instead of her. Oh, I wish I was there instead of him. But no, God has commissioned this moment in time. And we're a family. And you're the missionary of the moment. And all of a sudden, the dependency that I have on the Holy Spirit to work in your life and to work in this moment now becomes precious and wonderful. Your failings, the times that you embarrass not only the community Bible church, but more importantly, the Savior Jesus Christ, now becomes something that we have to work through and, and, and be concerned of. Our testimonies to the community becomes vital and vibrant. There are times when someone gets praised here and others get jealous. We have to learn how to suppress those sins so that Jesus Christ is honored and glorified and praised. And that's exactly what we see when these, go, these men and women go up the hill and 12 of them get selected and the others don't. And now they all have to figure out a way to come together in Jesus Christ. And that's what, exactly what we find when we see the book of Acts. They get together really well in Acts 2, but by the time they come to Acts 6, some of the widows aren't getting treated very well. And it, invite, and it creates a full-blown war within the local church that only godliness and prayer and trust in the Lord ends up accomplishing. Family, we have a, an incredible privilege to see God work within a local church I want you to notice fifth. Jesus uses a variety of normal. What I mean by that is simply this. Some of you will look at yourself and say, I'm not like so-and-so. And that's true. Some of you may be great woodworkers. Some of you wouldn't know what to do with a piece of wood. Some of you can make a quilt. Some of you can't wait to be given a quilt. Some of you love food. Some of you just eat so you can go out and have more fun outside. But you want to know something? There's none of us in this room that's all that special. We're just a family of normal. And that's exactly what you find here in Scripture. Jesus equips disciples with a message and a power to identify the authority of the message. He allowed them to, to cure the sick, as Matthew tells us, but here to cast out demons and to preach his message. But I want you to know he used normal men. Look at the, look at the text now. And he appointed twelve whom he named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he, called, or whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of Jesus, to whom he gave the name Boagerus. Excuse me, I practiced all last night. 
That is the sons of thunder. We'll just skip to that part. Andrew, Peter, Bartholomew, and Matthew. Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot. Family, God uses normal. And what I want you to also understand before we walk away, this also teaches us a little bit about Jesus. Sometimes we paint Jesus as this unsmiling, passionately pursuing life, I think he's got a little bit of, of normal in him. And what I mean by that is this. Do you see all of the embedded nicknames in here? He didn't stop at Simon. Simon's the zealot. We'll see in a moment Judas Iscariot. Iscariot probably is, a, is another form of this very identity of nationalistic people. He didn't call them just John and James. He called them the angry guys. Can't you just imagine when they lose his temper? Oh, sons of thunder, just lighten up. He told Peter, he calls him Little Stone. Maybe identifying Pete's struggle with ego. Hey, remember who the big stone is, buddy. Not you. Little Stone. He builds, he builds nicknames right into some of these guys' character. But what do we see in them? You know, we see all of the fragile reality of these men in their calling. Peter, isn't he really symbolic of flaw? I mean, just to utter his name, every one of us come up with sinking when he tried to walk on water, denying there the night that Jesus dies on the cross, opening his mouth when he should have kept it shut. He lacked a backbone. He had a huge ego. He had a temper to match. John and James so passionate that he'd actually identify their sin as sons of thunder. And then, can you imagine Scripture recording the two of them going out and conspiring with mom? Let me say, mommy. To sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand. The most, two most specific, powerful, awe-identifying positions that would be in the kingdom. Jesus, could you let my sons be in this position? Can you imagine conspiring with mommy to sit in those seats? He uses flawed men and women, just like the flawed men and women who gather and worship Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord each and every Sunday. Family, these people... God used to change the world. They weren't Marvel comic heroes. They were real-life people who had real-life insecurities and real-life problems just like yours. And yet God uses them over and over again. All He asks is that you be available, that you passionately pursue Him and allow Him to use all of your insecurities, all your insufficiencies to His honor and glory. And family, let's, let's notice one last one, a, a sixth. No matter how close some get to Christ, they won't get Him. No matter how hard you try, no matter how close they are. So notice, if you will, as we finish 19, 20, and 21, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Him, then He went home, And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Family, again, I want want you to use this morning to to engage your your mind and use your imagination for just a moment. Uh, I, I want you to understand and contemplate the ministry of Judas Iscariot. I don't know if you really thought it through. I didn't even think about it. But if if Jesus Christ just commissioned him to preach and to cast out demons, and Matthew tells us to heal, do you realize that Judas Iscariot 
was able to do every one of these things and did it in such a way that he was no different than any of the other men who were given that privilege. All right? Now again, I want to imagine some sort of spiritual conference where Jesus sits down with, with Judas and going, hey Judas, you're just not cutting it. You know, that demon was an easy demon. I don't know why you couldn't have cast him out. Really? This sickness? That was, that was just really nothing. It, it really wasn't a permanent disease. And you couldn't even get rid of it. You know, you're not cutting it. But you need to understand, when you go all the way to the Last Supper, every man there was surprised that, Jesus, that, that Judas was the betrayer. Every one of them was surprised. So what does that teach us? His healings were as significant as any of the other men's. His abilities were as significant as every one of the other men. And when push comes to shove, Jesus calls him the son of perdition. He's the traitor. And he walks away from the faith in Jesus Christ. And there will be some who will simply stun you, having been so close, and you've enjoyed fellowship so rich and wonderful, that they will walk away from their faith, and you will simply go, why? How? What is this? They will not get it. They do not grasp it. And though they teach a marvelous ABF, though they have significant gifts that you are stunned with, and you are jealous that they can do what they do. And when they walk away from their faith, you will be simply left aghast. Some will never get it. Family in, in Jesus' own family, some here didn't get it. We know that James, his half-brother, we know that Jude, his half-brother, they, they were followers. Um, we're not certain. We know that Mary, obviously, is a Christ follower. We don't know that all the family did. And yet, when they see him at this moment of time, they see him as a crazy man. Why was that? Uh, they may have been surprised that he walked away from the family business. You're leaving mom. Why are you doing this? Whether the business was successful or it was just holding on and they needed everybody to make ends meet, and there's Jesus going. They saw him as crazy. Maybe they were frustrated because the local leaders who were their spiritual examples were also now upset with Jesus. How would you like to go in as mom into synagogue on Sunday and Jesus is now being conspired against and you hear stuff said about your son? You, say, you hear derisive things, divisive things, said about your son maybe they're embarrassed maybe they couldn't forgive and they couldn't understand his, his new friends and his new behaviors family we don't know why someone would reject our savior the family saw him crazy and yet the world saw him as a healer the world saw him as something that they needed to chase down. We don't, we don't know why some will never find Christ as our Savior. And some of it will hurt us more than any other people. I believe our prodigal family is potentially the most hurtful people in our lives. As they walk away from the faith and you raised your sons and your daughters to know Christ as Savior. Or you're a son or a daughter, and, and later in life, mom and dad decided to, to play fast and loose with who they were in Christ, and they've lost the significance. I think that those are, are some of the most hurtful people in our lives in terms of impacting our spiritual life. And yet, we have to understand that this has been going on. It's not first to your generation. So family, I've given you six life lessons I'm hoping you can walk out and, and read the passage of Scripture and go, oh, Pete missed this. Pete missed it. Oh, there's such a wonderful wealth here. But even in passages of Scripture, 
that are easy to digest, easy to understand, the Holy Spirit has left you with places that you can walk away and wonderfully find resource that you can apply to your life and live out a relationship with the Savior even more wonderful than before you read that piece of Scripture. Enjoy your walk with the Lord. Enjoy your time in the Word and know that it's inexhaustible to benefit you. Father, I'd ask that you'd watch over. Dear God, give us a, a, a rich confidence in who we are in Christ. Father, we've been given everything by a Savior who wishes to ask, to wishes us to follow Him, to wish us to do so unashamedly and completely. And dear God in heaven, may we walk out today with that privilege and that awareness. Dear God, I would pray that you would allow us to evaluate the very motives by which we identify as Christ followers. Dear God, we're not here to, to find our motives satisfied. We're here to just simply give you everything and give you everything because Jesus Christ did so first. Father in heaven, help us to remember what a privilege it is to be part of a family. Dear God, we can pick and choose friends. We can push off the ones that are a little bit more difficult. But dear God, in the family of God, that can't be done. So Father, I would just ask that you would watch over. Allow us to recognize that this is a privilege that you've given us. And dear God, help us to remember that you use normal. And that's all any of us are, just normal. And yet, dear God, what you can do with someone who simply offers themselves to you is amazing. So we thank you today. Father, encourage us when people walk away from the faith and we don't know why they did it. Help us to recognize, dear God, that that is in your hands and in your mind and in your plans. And we leave it there. But there, dear God, help us to be faithful, hoping that there's a James and a Jude and a Mary out of the very ones, dear God, who originally thought Jesus was crazy. And dear God, may we see within our church men and women who've responded to our circle cards because, dear God, we have considered their needing to know Christ as Savior to be vital and format. And foremost, dear God, may we see men and women coming to CBC that have been one to Jesus Christ from us, the family who represents you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Follow us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest content. Thank you.